Did you know that Spotlight On is completely self-funded by the team that produces it? We're always looking for ways to keep the podcast self-sufficient without sacrificing the listener experience or the integrity of the show. The best way we could think to do that was to ask for the support of our listeners. Please consider making a donation to help cover our annual operating expenses. Go to SpotlightOnPodcast.com and click the word Donate. If you can, please do. If you cannot, please don't worry about it. Just continue to enjoy the show. We're happy to have you as a listener. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Dan Makta, Managing Director of North America and Northern Europe for the high-resolution music service Cobuzz. Here at Spotlight On, we get pitched constantly by publicists who want us to have their music business clients on as guests. Longtime listeners have noticed that we host fewer of those types of discussions than we have in the past. But when we do, we aim to feature only the most interesting people, the most interesting solutions, and the most interesting companies. Dan, his background, and his work at Cobuzz check all of those boxes and more. A creative leader in the modern music business, Dan is turning his skills promoting and marketing artists to the cause of high-quality audio, making sure the art itself is offered to consumers in the best way possible, consistent with the maker's original vision. And so now, I bring you Dan Mapta. Obviously, there's a lot I want to ask you about the streaming world and your thoughts on all that stuff and what you're doing now. But I love to set the table a little bit with some background. The New Jersey you grew up in, what was the musical environment around you? Were you a musical kid? Were you a consumer? Were you a player? What was that about for you? All of the above. Uh, this was the early 1980s. When I was a, a kid, I grew up, for whatever reason, really into the Beatles. When I was five years old, I remember having my mom take me to the record store and I had all the Beatles albums on vinyl before I had anything else, but that was like by age 11. And then I got into other 60s music and I was an early, you know, I was buying records and really into it before most kids or probably more than the other kids ever got into it. You know, I was a music fanatic from a very young age. And then I fell in with the hardcore punk crowd which was you know an emerging youth movement in the early 80s we had our own local bands and clubs that did all ages shows and people booked their own shows and things were happening in basements and all kinds of diy hijinks we were putting out yeah. fanzines i did a radio show on my high school an all hardcore punk radio show I was getting records from bands all around the world and pre-internet that's how we had to do it back then. A lot of things happening through through the mail and in person. But we had our own little scene and this hardcore punk subgenre. By the time I got to college, it still exists today. But the, that initial wave was already done by the end of the eighties, and I got into other other music. But you know, I've always liked a lot of music from age fifteen to. 19, I was pretty focused on this hardcore punk, which in some ways was 
more diverse than people may think it was, but it was like basically a bunch of guys slam dancing and all, all that jumping off the stage. <laughs> yeah. It's funny to think about it now, but I also played, I had a band and we uh, played hardcore punk. I was a, not a great musician. Maybe if I was, I would have played a different genre, you know, and we recorded and self-released a record and self-booked shows you know, like a u.s tour one summer all, all D- diy without any internet that's incredible yeah but i got all that out of my system before age 20 and then you know strictly business after that business and listener it's interesting about the punk scenes how um it's like every town had one they were so regional and so local how how proximate were you in new jersey to the new york scene was everything you were into in your backyard or did you come into the city back then? It was both. From the age 15, I was hopping on the train. It's called New Jersey Transit now. Back then, it was the Erie Lackawanna into uh, Hoboken. And the train didn't go all the way into Manhattan. We had to transfer to the PATH train in Hoboken to get into Manhattan. And I used to go to the hardcore punk matinee shows at the CBGB's. By the time I started going, they were on Sunday afternoons, all-ages show at CBGB's with all kinds of hardcore punk bands from all around the country and the local bands. Went to see shows at, at night at various venues. You know, I'm a parent now. I, if my son wanted to do it, I guess it would be cool. We live essentially in the city here, but uh, I can't believe what my parents let I me know. do from age 15. It's like heading off on the train into the city and it was see it tomorrow because the, the local train didn't run all night. So we could get the path back to Hoboken. And then we had to like sit in a diner across from the train station till 6 a.m. when the train started running again. Who uh, who lets their kids do that? But as soon as I could, I go record shopping and hanging out on St. Mark's Place and all that fun stuff was part of my early teen years. But then there were also bands out in Jersey and some local clubs and we were always trying to put on a show on someone's garage or at a club that we could somehow commandeer for our shows there were tons of local bands all all around jersey but the hardcore punk scene at that time was kind of inclusive of connecticut too it was like new jersey new york connecticut there were some clubs up in in connecticut that were also part part of our our universe it's really interesting there's so much generationally baked into a lot of what you're talking about, whether it was the idea that a lot of us essentially, once we hit our early teen years, became sort of wild and uh, ran, to an extent raised ourselves through those years, but also that sort of enterprising hustle aspect. A lot of what you said, you say resonates with me. I can remember us, we'd rent an Elks Hall or a, a volunteer fire hall or all these places where any anywhere that had anything remotely like a stage in an empty room there'd be somebody hustling together the money to rent the hall and print tickets. And before you know it, there's two or three bands playing. And it seemed like there was something going on every weekend and it was never the adults running it. Maybe, you know, maybe if it was an all ages club or something, but even then what seemed like an adult was probably somebody in their early, in their early twenties. Well, right. They, yeah. That's a big thing too, is the people who, to me, who seemed the, the adults guys in some of these bands that were pretty successful, put out a lot of records, toured all around the country, were in their early 20s, and they seemed... The elder states. Grizzled, grizzled, grizzled yeah. to me. But to me, it was like, 
as soon as I saw that my high school had a radio station, I was like, I got to get even before I discovered the hardcore punk to me, it was like, I got to get on the radio station. It seemed like what, you know, how can I not make this my top priority of high school? Yeah, that's fucking incredible. Get on the air. It was a real FM station. So took the training and my initial show was like 60s garage punk and 60s music because when i was 14 that was the coolest thing before i discovered the dead kennedys and black flag but that was age 15 when everything shifted but i had a a radio show and then i had my own fanzine it was like you got to do just do all this stuff and nobody told you how to do it but also nobody told you you couldn't do it yeah that's right I promise not to linger in this sort of bath of nostalgia for too much longer. Yeah, yeah. So now we've gotten to age fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> but one of one of the thing that has stayed with me about that era, and I obviously I don't know if I recognized it at the time, was that although at least where I grew up, suburb of New Haven, people were certainly they were in their sort of music defined cliques, if you will. So there were the skate kids and the deadheads and the metalheads and whatever else. But the amount of overlap between groups and between musical tastes back then, I think back on it now, and I don't think that that is the stereotype. I think people, certainly the exaggerated stereotype is that these were all very separate groups. But my experience was that we shared a lot of music, one of the early unifiers being hip hop when that broke. But I don't remember it being like so parochial that like, the and even to the extent of like everybody going to each other's keg parties or whatever it was it was like there was all kinds of music everywhere yeah and i was out in the suburbs in new jersey and it was like that i was friends with de- deadheads and metalheads and kids i grew up with i think generally the hardcore punk i was listening to was pretty radical at the time and i think there were only a handful of kids in my actual high school that were into that music. So I was viewed as, you know, a little weird or like this kid is going into the city to do something. We don't understand what it is, but on a local level, you know, and I was into, into all music. You think about the albums that came out when I was in high school that are now considered classics. We recognized most of it at the time. That era is so interesting. Were you an only child by any chance? I have a younger sister. What's the, what's the gap? She's two years younger. And she was, um, she's uh, fine, but she was in and out of hospitals a fair amount. So I do think that re- result of that was I was left on my own, <laughs> to my own devices to some degree. Your your story just strikes me as, and again, I'm sort of interpolating my experience, but I was an only child for about the first nine or 10 years of my life. And then my parents had another sort of set of kids, if you will. And so right as I was entering my early teen years, there was like zero adult supervision because they had their hands full with three young kids. But there was an extent that from a very early, so for you, what the Beatles were for you, the Stones were for me. I, I, I can remember hearing Gimme Shelter for the first time when I was like four years old and it terrified me. <laughs> it was just so ominous and unlike. And then you ran to it. Yeah, exactly. And you, ran, you ran to it. I embrace and I, yeah, but it music definitely was a, it was almost a physical place for me. It was a place I went to with my records and my world was around music and give me a 10 speed bike and a couple of bucks. And I was going to come home with 45s or imports or whatever it was. And uh, it was an incredible time of finding the weird out of the way record stores and just this other parallel universe that existed. Yeah, getting the music. I lived up on a mountain 
I had to ride my bike down the mountain was fine. The record stores were in town. Then I would strap the records to the back of the bike. I had to ride back up the hill and sneak the records into that house because my parents thought I'd spent enough money on records. I would put them in like a, the side window in, right into my room. <laughs> and today my kids, they got it too easy. I'll tell you, they got it too easy. They don't, I'm, I'm kidding. But yeah, was, yeah. there was so much, so, so much effort involved in getting the music, let alone uh, everything else that happens around it. Yeah, such adventures. So you went to Wesleyan up in Connecticut? I did, not far from New Haven. I was in a band that played in the student center or something there once. I remember it being pretty cool. But I used to love going to that campus for um, the Indian music festivals. The ethnomusicology program there was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I did not do any coursework in that field. I was a classics major. I liked Latin in high school. And I don't know. I, people didn't think about things like, what are you going to do with your life back then? So I was a classics major, but I was very interested in experimental music. And Wesleyan had, oh, you know, yeah. incredible faculty and history. So I took a lot of courses in experimental music. And through that, this comes back around to world music and all the incredible people who were at Wesleyan. Through the music department, I got to perform in a uh, concert performance of John Zorn's Cobra piece. Oh. And I don't know if you're familiar familiar with John Zorn's work. Okay, so it's one of the game pieces where people are putting on headbands of different colors, and it's all hand signals, and and I'm playing electric guitar. And again, I'm not like a great musician, but whatever. A couple people from the experimental music program got to participate, but they had people from the jazz department and the Indian music department, guys doing like Indian flute. I mean, I say guys, these were like esteemed musicians some of these guys were legendary musicians in india who were in artist in residence or professors at wesleyan doing this crazy john zorn piece and they went into it with such good good spirit you know i think the guy from the experimental music program who had brought john zorn in we did rehearsals with the local guy zorn only came in for the concert we did rehearsals amongst ourselves and uh, it was so incredible to watch these traditional Indian musicians opening up to the concepts of this John Zorn game piece. That's incredible. Doing their best, even though it had zero to do with anything related to how they make music in that tradition. Yeah. Before I moved to New York in the mid 90s, that was one of the adventures that uh, taking the Metro North train in and making our way downtown to the old knitting factory to see Masada or Sonny Chirac or those were amazing pilgrimages to make. And those guys would venture north every once in a while. There would be these weird events and outside of Hartford or just weird. Just there was these weird little arts groups and stuff that would sponsor a lot of those New York guys to come up and do a weekend of shows or whatever. But uh, I have a hard time envisioning Zorn on the on the Wesleyan campus. I love the visual of it. Was Braxton there while you were there? He came in right at the tail end, I think as an artist in residence, maybe my senior year, or maybe it was right after, which I thought was so cool. But Alvin Lucier was on faculty and I took multiple classes with him. I wasn't really familiar with what he did before I got to Wesleyan. But once I got there, heard his work and then met him, took an intro to experimental music with him. I ended up taking music composition with 
them. I'm not a composer. To sit in the class, it was mainly for his stories. I like, couldn't get enough. I love stories. I couldn't get enough of his stories. Basically, his way of teaching was telling you anecdotes from all of his years composing. That's incredible. He'd be talking about working with some of the key experimental music composers in the 60s. He mentioned the names, but he'd be talking about these guys. I was never really into myself, but I think a lot of them may have been on drugs. <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> I thought it was so, 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 so funny. Yeah, Wesley was great. I mean, the work worked out well for me, but college is what you make it. So you leave Wesleyan as a newly minted classics scholar. What's the plan then? Well, the other th th thing that I did at Wesleyan was college radio, WESU. Mm. is the station and uh one of my big goals for college was also to get into college radio big time so i was the music director of the station starting my sophomore year and so i had this non-academic pursuit of all things college radio and indie rock as it was developing in the late 80s and when it came time my senior year to start thinking about what i was going to do I was mainly looking at trying to get into music. So I had a few irons in the fire applications. I got a job the summer after college, my first music business job. So I went right into it. And that was the result of the people who I met through the college radio station. But it was uh, 4AD, the British label, in their... New York office, which was three people doing radio promo. That was the natural thing for people who had worked as college radio music directors. You could go then and become a radio promoter and promote to other college radio music directors. I did that and had a great run at 4AD of about six months. And then the label was made a deal with Warner Brothers it had been totally independent. The stuff we had been doing was either licensed to major labels, in the case of the Pixies or Throwing Muses or Cocteau Twins, or was we were just working imports. And they did deal with Warner Brothers, and uh, they closed the New York office and relocated to L.A. and didn't take any of the New York people with them. So wow. it was easy come, easy go. What an incredible era for 4AD, that, that roster. Dead Can Dance, all that stuff. Yeah, in the six months I was there, I promoted Dead Can Dance, Pixies, Trump Lamonde, This Mortal Coil, Blood, Wolfgang Press, Queer, a little heralded cl classic. I worked with His Name is Alive, who are one of my all-time favorites. All this stuff. And we had the whole catalog on vinyl in the record closet. I think during the time I also worked with Pale Saints lush loved all that stuff so it was great and i met a lot of people and came with a credible pitch from the get-go and i lost the job and took a randomly unexpected step and just started my own business as a radio promo independent what did i have after the job it was a list of college radio music directors and some relationships that I'd built up. So 
I looked, I, there were some other labels that might be looking for a promotion person. I think I applied for a few jobs. But at the same time, I just had a few artists and labels that said, well, can we just hire you for a project? To which I said, yeah, absolutely. How much do you want? I don't know. How much did it? $500? That was my, my, I got, I, my problem was I priced myself too low from day one. Yeah, we all do. Someone's offering me money just to do this and they're going to pay me directly. Sure. I took on a few that were also great artists and great bands that went on to do well. And the uh, independent projects became the focus and partnered in the end with the woman who also worked at 4AD, who was the PR person who was cut loose at the same time. Mm. And we worked together as a radio promo and PR agency for about eight years. And at the height of things had six or seven people on the team. And I promoted everything in the, in the 90s. It was the era of indie rock and wannabe indie rock and superstar. Alternative radio. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that was a good run as well. But I worked with all kinds of cool independent labels from drag city records to thrill jockey and lots that weren't from chicago but um <laughs> did you deal with marco out here marco collins oh yeah absolutely i might have i can't remember either i promoted silkworm the marco collins sessions that he put out or i just really liked it that's the problem is i can't remember with a lot of things from that year it's like did i work it I just listened to it a lot. Um, <laughs> but I definitely worked on Silkworm. I just associated with him with Silkworm from that era. But Joel Phelps, who was a member of Silkworm, I promoted his earliest solo records. I promoted Neutral Milk Hotel. I promoted Guided by Voices before they were household names. There were actually people who were promoting them. It didn't just happen from nowhere. I have to ask you, Having encountered this in my own career, and I'm definitely not asking you to name names unless you want to, but did you ever have instances where you worked a project because it was good business, but you struggled to connect with the music or outright didn't like the music? Or did you were you able to maintain that ability to only work what you wanted to work? In my independent promoter days, the company was called Autotonic. I really tried to maintain some level of credibility. So that's all that we had to go on was that if we mailed a package to a radio programmer that they saw the return address and would take it seriously or put it at the top of the pile or at least listen to it as opposed to ignore it, I did feel like we needed to be super careful. The things that we did for money, just for the money, were always still kind of cool we had worked on some stuff for big bad voodoo daddy swing band said sure and it was with you know that was distributed by capital records or something and we did a good job with it and then we got hired by the same group to promote the 30th anniversary of the beatles white album which i, I thought was cool like i got to send a new copy of the possibly the first ever on CD out to all these college radio stations and 
it's the Beatles. I got to say I worked with the Beatles. And then the same group, you know, it got even weirder, but I still thought it was cool. The Steve Miller Band was going on a college tour. So they wanted to see if they could get a little interest in the Steve Miller Band from college radio. Now, I happen to be a fan of both the early psychedelic blues Steve Miller Band and the later FM rock Steve Miller Band. I, I like it. I had no problem with it. So we got to mail out the entire Steve Miller Band catalog on CD to all these college radio stations. And it was everything going back to Children of the Future. Up to, it's not like all of a sudden he was a star on college radio. So it was a bit of a compromise because it wasn't really promoting something at college radio that needed promoting. But yeah, so this doesn't answer your questions. I still like the music personally. Yeah, no, um, that's hip though. But, but then later, once I got to working at major labels, I mean... I worked with the Backstreet Boys. I didn't like the Backstreet Boys, but that was, I was asked to do it as part of my job, so I did it. Let me ask you this, I, I, not to belabor the point. I have an analog with an artist that I would say my Backstreet Boys, and um, I was running a company at the time, and we signed this artist. It felt irresponsible not to, I guess would be the way I'd say it. When a pop superstar walks in the door, you really have to think about it. If you've got, you know, you had mouths to feed and people on payroll. How hard did you work to find something to connect with? Or did you just say, you know what, this is part of my gig. This is what I do. I work in a label. Did you find something to identify with? Because the punchline for me is I wound up finding the thing that allowed me to feel good about it. <laughs> um, and, and what I would call, even in retrospect, a non-cynical way. And I wonder if you were able to do that or if you needed to do that or if you were able to just be a pro. Because that's probably what I'm saying. Is I, I could never be professional enough <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What are some of the other things I worked with at when I was at Sony? I worked with the band Three Days Grace, who are not really considered yeah. credible. Huge radio rock band. Huge. So what did I connect with? These guys are fucking huge. They're playing stadiums. I'm their product manager. That's cool. They're good at what they do. I got into some of those songs when I'm in the stadium with all these kids also thinking like where is all this anger coming from why are all all, all these kids so angry you know <laughs> yeah. it, it was that's where my mind went and uh i worked with bowling for soup who had one radio hit that i wasn't working with them for so i was their product manager on the follow-ups to their huge hit they didn't replicate it i didn't feel like that was my fault did they no no <laughs> i mean you know, I think it was in the area where we could just blame, ra you know, radio didn't embrace it. The head of radio promo for the label was a big fan. I think they tried. The band certainly played every radio festival and did every possible promo thing. But when you're in that game, it's either it takes off or it doesn't. So the records after their big hit were increasingly uh, downhill. But the, what I loved about Bowling for Soup was that they were great guys with an incredible sense of humor. The last album that I worked on for them was called Sorry for Partying. And it, the album cover was the guys in the band being flushed down a toilet. <laughs> All right. Uh, because I, yeah. it was the last album, last al album for the label. And uh, I enjoyed working with them, even if I uh, don't consider myself a big, big listener to that particular brand of pop punk. You know, when I worked for the major label, I think felt like I just whatever I was asked to do, I felt I was lucky to be being asked. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. 
If you're enjoying this conversation, please visit the show notes in your podcast app. They're packed with links to resources that will take you deeper into the people and topics explored here. Thanks. And now, back to Spotlight On. Let me ask you something about the role of product manager and and marketing within a label context these days. I see that as quite possibly one of the most difficult and thankless jobs in the world right now. Like, I don't know that there's a playbook you could pick up and who do you call it radio? Who? Do, where do you go? Everything seems so fragmented. Now that's me being 5,000 feet away from it, but I work enough projects where I see the struggle that a label marketing team has to make something break through or to make something last more than a week or a weekend or past street date. I wonder how, how you look back and like, would you, could you do that job today? Would you, how do you feel about that job? And as a secondary sort of pivot into what you're doing now, I would love to hear a little bit about the differences between marketing a release or an artist versus a service. I thank my lucky stars every day that I'm not a label marketing person anymore because I don't think I would really know. I mean, to me, it seems like if you have a new artist, you throw it up in the air and hope something happens on TikTok in terms of the kinds of breakthroughs and where my teenage kids are finding out about music. That's what it is. They heard it on TikTok. And that's not something that label marketing can really control or even necessarily influence. But when I was doing it, it was thankless. I'm realizing now it's been, you know, well, I worked at independent labels after the majors, but 2013 was when I left Sony. And it was thankless. And during my tenure there, the GM took all of the marketing people aside once for a team meeting and said, you guys have the most thankless job. He actually told us because basically if things are going well, the artists and management take full credit. And if things are going bad, you will take full blame. Oh, Dan, I know. That probably hasn't changed. It's hard because there's so many competing interests within a label Within the big label system, the product manager's job is just sort of like herding cats and getting all of the resources hopefully marshaled behind a release and lined up in the right way and trying to maintain good relationships within a company for people that don't actually work for you, but you need them to do their jobs on these releases in order for things to actually have a chance of success. Yeah, But you're still just lining things up to hopefully get lucky because there's that element that you can never control. So that that was the thing with marketing at a label is you've always got a set list of current projects. There's the seven albums that are currently on the schedule that I'm responsible for and various stages of the release cycle for these. And that's what I'm doing now. And I'm as good as those. It doesn't matter that last time it was a gold album. You are responsible for what's happening now the current releases and you don't have any control as a marketing person over the content of those releases really that's the domain of a and r and my experience at the labels was they didn't really care for marketing's input on the creative for better or for worse one of the things that i was looking to do in the uh waning days of my record label employment was to get onto the other side the music streaming side where instead of only being as good as my current releases, my personal risk was more spread out across 
all of recorded music or, you know, at least everybody's releases, you know, there'd always be something good coming out. Being on the retail side now, it's great because I get to work with everybody. Yeah. When you work at a label, sometimes you may have an artist on tour with another artist or I guess an artist featuring on another artist's track. Maybe the marketing people confer, but there's not a lot of real collaboration with people at other labels. You're not necessarily really competitors, but you are kind of, and just people tend to do their own thing. So as many people and friends as I accumulated over the years who worked at other labels, I didn't really have a chance to work with them. Now, since CoBuzz is an account, they're all our suppliers, everyone I've ever met along the way. And it's a lot of fun and really gives me a chance to activate a lot of the cool relationships I've made over the years. There's so much I want to ask you about the company and about your gig, and I try to be, I'll try to be succinct. I'm really curious about the scope and scale of what you guys are up to. And by that, I mean, like, how much of the market do you need to stay viable? I would imagine I wouldn't be the first person to say, like, the aspiration can't be like, we're going to unseat Spotify or we're going to, how do you think about success? You hit the nail on the head. The people who don't get it are the ones who say, you can't compete with Apple and Spotify. Don't even bother. That's definitely missing the point. We're trying to get to 1%, 1% of the streaming market in the countries that we're in and open more countries as we go. But if we were able to do that, the company would be wildly profitable if we maintained more or less the same kind of cost structure, meaning it's, it's a tiny afterthought in terms of the size compared to the others that are in the space. But the miraculous thing is we're offering a service that's extremely competitive and differentiated, but we're right up there in the conversations when you look at the campaigns around artists that are co-buzz friendly. Our main genres are rock and jazz and classical. So there's a whole world of artists that don't necessarily get a ton of love from mainstream streaming, but are front and center on the Kobuz service, we feel like we're able to punch above our weight. We're not doing mass marketing campaigns. It's all super focused. We haven't even really talked about the service, but it's this high-end, mm-hmm. high-quality audio streaming and download platform and just very focused on serious music listeners and audiophiles. The audiophiles are the core because there are people who already know what a flack file is and already know that mainstream streaming is generally starts it with lossy files and so on and so forth. So there was a built-in constituency for what we were doing among the audio files. But anyhow, long story short, what I get to market now is a very unique product that has a audience that we know is is there. The challenge is just reaching the audience. And the cool part is that we get to work with whatever cool artists and labels and partners that have the same kind of message or audience as us, you know, it's whatever we could, whatever we come up with. So that makes it fun. Just for the benefit of people listening who may not be that same well-versed consumer that you just referenced, 
and I, you know, I'm not asking you to do like the the codec breakdown or the scientific dissertation here, but putting on your sort of marketing hat, how do you state to people that what Cobuzz does is different and matters? It's not just about the sound quality, but if we start from the sound quality, which is not something that's exclusive to Cobuzz, but we were the first and we pioneered this, it's realizing that mainstream streaming services who shall remain nameless, but everybody knows who they are, generally are working with what you know could be considered MP3 quality. And everybody should know by now, if they don't know, that MP3 does not equal CD quality. And if you grew up listening to CDs, or if you grew up listening to vinyl, you'll know that the MP3 does not generally sound as good because there's digital compression. Something was taken out of the music. There's some digital trickery that happens that fools your brain into thinking you're hearing everything. But in a lot of cases, you don't need a trained ear to be able to hear the improvement that comes from what we call a lossless format. And Cobuzz streams and sells. We sell download files, too, for those that prefer to own their music. Streams in, in this high-quality format where everything is at least the quality of a compact disc. But a lot of it is even above. 24-bit audio is the format that most recording studios work in today. And the CD can't handle it. But with digital streaming today, we could do even these high-resolution formats. And tons of great old music is constantly being remastered where they go back to the tapes. And they're re-digitizing the tapes in these higher audio quality formats. So Koba specializes in all of that. But what makes us different really is the editorial approach and a human-centered curation approach. We're not about lots of algorithms that, that know what you should be listening to or know what you like better than you do. We're not about lo-fi beats, chill music to activate your brain for better studying. There's others that do that better. We are really focused on what at this point amounts to a bit of an old school record store experience to you and me, it's not that radical, but to someone whose experience of streaming music is just opening up in an app where they see podcasts and music for sleeping. It, it's kind of radical. Cobuzz is really takes a lot of time to focus on the album. You know, when you open up Cobuzz, the first thing you see is new albums in a variety of genres, rock, jazz, classical soundtracks, and we have all the hip-hop and all the pop. We've got all the music and the best quality available. But, you know, we have people that really know their stuff picking the 20 to 40 new albums every week that you're going to see on the front page. We have written editorial content and reviews and articles, different kinds of features right in the app. We have digital booklets in the app. So it's like the CD booklet right in the streaming service which really results in a different experience uh, on every level than mainstream streaming. We want you to be digging around and hunting around and learning about music while you're using Cobas and not just setting it and forgetting it. And that's not for everybody, but with the aspiration being to get to 1% of the market, it actually seems reasonable. Like 1% of the listeners would be interested in just getting the best audio quality and a more fully baked experience in terms of the context and 
digging into music, you know, I don't want to say the way, the way we used to, but maybe it is the way we used to. And not surprisingly, our audience is older. Whereas in the mainstream streaming, you're talking about the kids, my 17 year old daughter, which is great. Tons and tons of consumption happens there, but there are older consumers that never have really bought into that or embraced it. And a lot of our new customers are not coming from another streaming service. They're coming from never having done any streaming. That's fascinating. So it's kind of opening up, you know, streaming to a segment of the audience that may not have embraced it otherwise. And the audiophile scene is growing and getting younger with a lot more great headphones and what they call personal listening devices and, um, you know, just powered speakers and whole new classes of of hardware that allow people to hear music better than they have before without having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. Although you still can. Yeah. If you want to spend a million dollars on a hi-fi system, it's available. Given the the way the product sort of specializes or is tailored to people who maybe want to go deeper, you know, you mentioned the digital booklets, the liner notes, the focus on editorial and album level content. Does that manifest in more of a desktop versus a mobile user or like uh, how are people using the service? It, it seems like it might be for a less on the go user, but that's me. Yeah, well, the mo- mobile apps are definitely there's a lot of usage, but it is mostly desktop and a lot of what I'd call partner apps at this time because there are so many hi-fi audio integrations. A lot of this hardware comes with its own app and Cobuzz as a music provider plugs in. Gotcha. But our own usage is mostly desktop, although I think mobile is increasing because people can you know, use the mobile app with great USB DAC and headphones or, and you can use it with Bluetooth headphones on the go. It certainly works just fine. I mean, I use Cobuzz in the gym, but that's not using it to the best of its abilities. It's interesting hearing you talk about the way you came up, the scenes and the and the sort of cultural context you came up in, and then talking a bit it, like Koba sounds like the streaming service you would have invented had you been a streaming service inventor. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's why I feel lucky to have found the company when I did. It was not yet launched in the U.S. when I joined five years ago. Uh, it had already been in business in Europe for almost a decade. But the concept seemed great to me. It seemed super ambitious to think that we were going to launch a streaming service and download store in the United States with three people in a little WeWork fishbowl. But we were able to do it. And that now it's been almost five years and we're growing faster than the market. And I would say beating expectations. It's very satisfying because it is... I don't know if I would have invented it, but when I think about who our customer is, it's me. It's somebody who really loves music and really just wants to be able to listen and learn and know that the quality is the best. Yeah. And and I built up this great vinyl collection and I have a nice hi-fi system that I put together for my vinyl. But if you put lossy digital streaming through it it sounds bad you know when you go from vinyl to that you're like "Eh, i'm gonna go back to the vinyl but 
COBAs and high-res streaming offers someone who's put together a system like that with 25 different very easy and affordable ways to get COBAs into that same hi-fi system that will sound as good or probably better than the vinyl. At this point, I feel like I have to upgrade my turntable and my cartridge because Cobas is making the digital sound so much better that when I go back to my, you know, the, the audience can't see this, but I'll show you the the vinyl over there and up there. There's some more over there. I'm not utilizing it because I feel like I got to upgrade the turntable. So yeah. Anyway, it's it's always it's always something. That is the problem once you go down the sound quality rabbit hole and the audiophile rabbit hole. There's always an upgrade to aspire to. The other thing that strikes me is, I mean, it seems pretty glaring that the theme of curation is one throughout your life. I mean, whether it's a teenage you hustling a fanzine or being on the high school radio station or or your involvement with radio over the years or your first company, like this idea that there's an aesthetic or a human element to what's being presented and brought out seems to be something that at the product level, you all have maintained and expanded on the focus on recommendations and editorial. It's very consistent. I don't want to say a throwback mentality because that 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 marginalizes it, but it just seems like it's a very interesting strand. Yeah, and, well, it's it's the uh, the enthusiast in me, yeah. you know, and the participant. I always in, was interested in getting involved and doing things, and not just being a bystander. So certainly in my years working for labels, I was somewhat limited, although I tried to put myself in a position to be working with things that I felt like I could personally recommend. Like when I was Weird Al Yankovic's product manager. That's got to be a career highlight. Absolutely. White, white and nerdy. It, it was because of how digital music had evolved was his biggest single to date because his previous singles hadn't there hadn't been iTunes and he had, I think it was a you know, multi-million selling single. Anyhow, Weird Al, if we're talking about music and the music business, if you're going to focus on how you can sell out from day one, you may be wildly successful. My approach was really how to do it without selling out and try to focus on the the quality or the perceived quality or something like taste. I don't claim to have any great special taste, but I think that there's a way of doing business in the arts, I guess I would say, that valorizes the art as opposed to the commerce. You can actually have success if you remain consistent and uh, also get a little lucky. It ultimately, in my mind, how... Koba's boils down for me is there's a there's an intense focus on aesthetic, right? Like the quality of the sound, the the features of the product. Is there something uniquely French about the product? And is there something uniquely French about the company? Is that too much of a stretch? No. I have not personally worked directly with a French company before. So maybe I'm wrong, but I think that Koba's is very French. There are a lot of meetings and a lot of discussions around almost every choice and nothing that you see is by accident so i mean some of it is a mistake but bar barring that there is definitely an attitude of 
what do they, they call it? The French touch. And they often ask me, the French team asks me, can we use that in the U.S. marketing, the French touch? I said, I don't think people will get it if we use that as a tagline in the United States. But it's definitely, it's a talking point for sure, because everything about it feels really different from other apps that may be more American feeling or maybe Scandinavian. But there are certain things that feel very European about the design choices and some of it we push against a little bit in the U.S. because we need things a little bit more flashy and attention-grabbing sometimes. But I think there's, there's a nice balance struck. Last thing I wanted to ask you, and I hope it's not too big of a question, where does spatial audio fit in the audiophiles world? Is it a thing beyond gimmickry? Is it something audiophiles care about? Like, how do you think about spatial audio? My own per personal thought on it is, at least to my own listening today, really good two-channel is plenty immersive. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I'm right there. But audiophiles who are hardcore into what they call multi-channel are into true multi-channel that you would find as like content on a Blu-ray disc where it's seven or nine or 14 channels, all lossless. And you really have the speakers in your room. You're sitting there with the speakers upward firing. Everything is yeah. you know, pro probably set up with a computer. You're getting the real experience. There are a segment of audio files into that. There's very limited content, all classical, only classical. Like I said, mostly available on Blu-ray, not streamable. I'd be interested in streaming it. And a little secret is Cobuzz actually has about 20 of these recordings in our library. And if you stream them just right through the right kind of DAC and system, apparently you get it to work and you can stream this true multi-channel. We have it sort of by accident. I don't know. If you just play it through a regular system, it just sounds like stereo, I guess. But there's just not that much content. And it's the labels would have to decide or agree to digitize it or to transfer it in that way and distribute it, productize it. But on the other hand, you've got Dolby Atmos music and Sony 360 reality audio, which are a very different thing. Not to get too technical, but as you can tell, I've spent a lot of time with this. Yeah, yeah, that's why I asked. The audiophiles really turn their noses up at these formats. They work two ways. If you're sitting in a home theater system with the surround speakers and everything. There is some decoding that goes on with surround channels that actually do something. That's all lossy. There's no such thing as a lossless or high-res Dolby Atmos music, which is something that our users know or our core hardcore audiophile users know. Even if an album's native, like it, the original master is that way? The remix is going to be downsampled. Because of, gotcha. that's how it works. That's how the file is still pretty heavy as it is with sending all those channels. But the surround channels are uh, are lossy. Gotcha. And then the other way that those codecs work is with the uh, binaural headphone, which is essentially a separate mix that it sends if you're listening on headphones that gives you the impression of some spatial audio. 
which again is tricky because of the physics of how you, humans hear some people's head shape or ear shape. It doesn't work or it doesn't work as well or as intended. But if you've got the optimal shaped head and ears, it can be pretty cool. But, you know, it's controversial. Some people don't want to hear their music remixed that way, blah, blah, blah. As it concerns Kobas, there is a lot of support in the music industry for Dolby Atmos music and tons of stuff being mixed and remixed. They would like us to offer it. We have some listeners who do want it. In a perfect world, we would just snap our fingers and be able to offer it. But there's a lot of technical development involved in getting our apps to be able to play it because there's a, you know additional processing required and different kinds of storage and delivery because of the nature of the files. So it's on our roadmap. It's a feature that's going to be added, but I couldn't tell you if it's going to actually be this year or because at this point it's a catch up thing for us and we can't raise our prices if we add it. So it's not going to generate much ROI as they say in business. That's me with my cold, cold blooded businessman hat on. You know, I'm interested in the space both because it seems like we're at the end of maybe a two and a half, three year period where everybody was talking about <laughs> spatial audio, but also I was involved in some projects to have some catalog for an artist redone by the original producer. And I enjoy listening to it, but it's not what I go back to when it's time to listen to those albums. That would be sort of the way I would, I would summarize it for me is like, there's a thrill ride aspect to it where it's really fun. And sometimes it is like amazing and you hear these different things, but it's like, that's not really what I'm going for, you know? And I'm interested certainly in, in where it goes in terms of new creativity and artists who are innovating and it's already happening at this point. I can't listen to it on my system or my service, but it's not going away. And I think that, just like early digital and early CDs didn't necessarily sound that great or it took some time, some iterations for things to really get to be as good as they could be. It's, it's the same thing. I think it's probably not the savior of the music industry, but it's certainly an additive and positive element when done in the right spirit. Yeah. When it seems like when everybody on the both the creative and the technical end of making a new work start to become natively adept in the tools, then we'll start to see some interesting things happen as opposed to going back and shoehorning old old stuff into the format. Again, it can be effective, but you can imagine there's a lot of opportunity to treat it as almost like a new medium or a new a new set of paintbrushes to use. That that's when I think we'll see some interesting things. Yep. Well listen, man, thank you. I mean I, I could probably do two more hours with you, but I suspect you have a day job that might have take some of your attention but uh yeah yeah i got lots more stories but we covered a few of the good ones thank you so much dan macta and the team at cobuzz as always thank you for listening to spotlight on a production of 23 media ventures i'm your host and executive producer lawrence purrier we're produced and edited by michael donaldson and our theme music is by Cuburn's abstract message for past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. <laughs>